0: have your Bibles, turn with me to John's Gospel in chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. The resurrection of Jesus is a physical reality. It's where we are in our study of John's Gospel. And Jesus was raised with the same body in which he suffered and bled and died. Today he lives, seated at the right hand of God, as truly as you are sitting where you are. And the passage makes a claim and makes an offer. Because Jesus is alive, the Christian gospel is the only means by which you can meet him for yourself. As surely as Mary met him in the garden tomb on the first, Resurrection Sunday. So we're going to direct our attention to John 20, where we have come to in our afternoons. Let's pray before we read God's word. Lord God Almighty, I pray for grace to hear the voice of the Saviour who calls his people by name. I grant that we may hear our names on his lips, calling us to turn from the empty tomb to the living Saviour, in the preaching of the gospel, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So John 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet and they said to her woman why are you weeping she said to them they've taken away my lord and i do not know where they have laid him having said this she turned around and saw jesus standing but she did not know that it was jesus jesus said to her woman why are you weeping whom are you seeking supposing him to be the gardener she said to him sir if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rebole, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. We thank the Lord for the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Yep. It was the writer of the Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. R. Tolkien, who coined the phrase that described for him a really important element. And I've probably used this before in good storytelling. And he coined that word, eucatastrophe and J.R.R. R. Tolkien deliberately and explicitly relates this word eucatastrophe to the resurrection and Tolkien says that the resurrection is the ultimate eucatastrophe we know what a catastrophe is many of us have, we've just lived through 18 months of catastrophe And depending the way you see things, maybe there are things every day in the news that appear to you to be a catastrophe. I certainly think that we are living in a catastrophe when you look at the the churches around us and the bill that's going through Parliament about conversion therapy and how we should be on the Lord that we are able to pray for one another and that isn't taken away from us. But a catastrophe is probably defined as a disaster that suddenly overtakes us, that could not be prevented. Think of natural disasters, and uh, you know, and COVID, and the lockdowns, and all of that. You catastrophe is a disaster. Is as disaster is about to descend, there is a glorious reversal and good rather than evil is what comes out of it. So that's what a eucatastrophe is. It's as disaster is about to hit, there is a glorious reversal and good rather than evil is what comes out of it. So the resurrection is, therefore, the great eucatastrophe. And if you think about what we've been looking at about the death of Christ, how they thought, how... And all of those rulers, Caiaphas, Annas, they thought they'd done it, they thought they'd nailed it. Satan thought he had won. Christ dead on the cross. So the resurrection is clearly the great eucatastrophe. At the moment when disaster struck, good rather than evil is what ensues. Mary is overcome by grief in our passage but her eyes are open to see the risen Lord Jesus standing before her. The passage really focuses on verses 11 to 18 where Jesus meets with Mary, that's where I want to spend a few moments. And the Lord Jesus says three things to Mary Magdalene. First of all he does speak a word of correction to her in verse 15, I believe there's a verse of calling in verse 16 and a verse of commission. Verses 17 and 18. But before we get to that, we need to spend some time with Mary and try and understand her confusion. So the chapter opens on the first day of the week, so it's very early on Sunday morning. John says it was still dark, and Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb of Jesus. The other gospel accounts speak about a whole company of women who were followers of Jesus who came with Mary. John wants us to focus our attention on Mary so he doesn't mention the other women. But he gives us a clue that they were there because he says they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So that's saying that Mary is the spokesperson for more than just her. And the other Gospels tell us what happened. That while Mary was with the disciples telling them about this, the other women saw angels at the tomb who explained Jesus had been raised. And these women returned to the disciples eventually and the disciples dismissed their message out of hand. But Simon Peter and John, they run to the tomb to see what has happened. Mary coming along behind and when they get there, they look into the tomb. They see the grave clothes folded, the face cloth lying in the place by itself. We're told that John saw and believed. John and Peter believed the report. The body was missing, because John says, "For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must raise, rise from the dead." So they leave dismayed, and crestfallen, and heartbroken. And all over again, that the Lord's body is now missing. That was their instinctive first reaction. His body is now missing. And if that, then Mary is standing weeping outside the tomb. The passage over and over emphasizes how distraught Mary is. She's weeping, she's grieving, she's heartbroken, she's devastated. Her tears give evidence of her profound love. the Lord Jesus. And in fact her grief is so profound in verse 12 that when two angels appear to her, it barely seems to register at all. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now some of the commentaries that I have been looking at, they note several interesting things about the scene. One points out that this is the only place in the Bible where angels are seen sitting down. That's something for a a trivial pursuit, isn't it? This is the only place in the Bible where angels are seen sitting down. Another another notes where they are sitting, at the head and at the feet of where Jesus' body was, emphasizes the emptiness of the tomb. Is it emphasizing double emphasis? He isn't there and the third gear hardest boss connects the location and the posture of the angels sitting at either end of the place where the body of Jesus Christ lay with the golden cherubim who are positioned at each end of the mercy seat on the ark of the covenant that is the place where the high priest in the old testament sprinkled blood on the day of the atonement to make payment for the sin of the people, Is John referring to that and alluding that this could be a picture of satisfaction, atonement, made in the blood of Jesus, accepted before God? I don't know, but whatever the symbolism and the significance of the visitation of these angels, Mary misses it. She almost seems not to notice. It's almost as if... She speaks with angels every day. None of it penetrates. So when the angels inquire, Woman, why are you weeping? They're astonished. They're gobsmacked at that point. Woman, why are you weeping? He's alive. And she replies through her tears, almost matter-of-factly, almost absent-mindedly, They've taken away my Lord's and I do not know where they have taken him. But see the intimacy of her language. When she was the spokeswoman for the other women, she said to the disciples, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now she's alone in the tomb with a grief. She says, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And it's in that moment of vulnerability and intimacy that Mary becomes aware that there's someone standing behind her. And verse 14, she turns around and Jesus is standing there, alive again from the grave. And still she doesn't know that it's Jesus. Some commentators again have said, this is just an indicator of how profound her grief was and her tears were streaming and she didn't recognise Jesus. But there are other instances of encounters with the disciples after the resurrection, just like this one. For, exa- for example, the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, that, by the way, is something I am going to find out in glory what Jesus said to them. I really, I really want to find out that one. We'd well, you know, we, we love to know what the Lord said to them, but That's by the Bible. But the disciples in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, they knew about the cross, they didn't know yet about the resurrection. And when Jesus met them, like Mary, their eyes were blind and Jesus had to open their eyes supernaturally as he is about to do supernaturally for Mary. So the blindness isn't psychological or emotional or physical, it is profoundly spiritual. So even when Jesus, the living Christ, speaks to her, and repeats the angel's question. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She does not recognise him, and she thinks this must be the gardener. So for Mary, this is a load of agony and grief. But we know how the story ends. And John, as he's writing his Gospel, wants us to feel the joy of it. Because Mary's tears are about to be replaced. With celebration. And John is cluing us into the sheer wonder of resurrection. The joy of it. The celebratory note. Here is the Lord alive from the grave. She thinks he's there to look after the roses. Clearly she loves him. And who would fail to be moved by her expressions of intimate, tender loss and grief for her Lord? But her love is not enough. She loves him. But she does not yet understand. She does not remember his promises. He had often told them. That the son of man must suffer and be crucified. And buried and on the third day. He will rise again from the dead. And like Simon Peter and John. She also did not yet understand the scriptures. That he must rise from the dead. But she loves him. There is care for Jesus, but there is not yet faith in his promises. She was surprised. She wasn't expecting it. The tomb was empty. And that should have been cause for rejoicing, for he was keeping his promise. But instead she discounted all that Jesus has said, telling her he would rise. And all she can see is her grief. But there's an important lesson for us here before we come to Jesus' answer to Mary. Mary loves him, she cares deeply about him, but she does not yet believe his promises. And that's a salutary lesson for us all because love for Christ and affection for Christian things is not enough. Love for Christ or an affection for Christian things without faith, in Christ's person and promises leaves us still blind. Only faith opens our eyes to see the risen Christ. There is a lesson for us there. It is faith that opens our eyes to see the risen Christ. You must believe in faith on the risen Lord Jesus. And I don't mean a vague sense of a sentence, the idea of Jesus, that it means that you personally must come to rely on trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself. Yes. Only the Lord Jesus can rescue you from spiritual blindness that every one of us labours under by our nature. Jesus opens our eyes. That's the first thing I want you to see is where, by way of context, really, that Mary's confusion, she's spent so much time with him. She's so familiar with him and his message. But at the crucial moment, when she said "Aha! He said he would," as as of yet, she does not yet believe. But look how Jesus responds, and this is the word of correction. In verse fifteen, Jesus speaks a word of correction. It is gentle. It is tender. It is kind, but it is still a word of correction. Verse fifteen: Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Mary, the work is done. Death is dead. Jesus is alive. Why are you weeping, Mary? That is a word of correction. And it is a correction that I need to hear. Perhaps you need to hear as well. The British can be very like Eeyore, really. You know Eeyore. Um, I worked out the difference between an American and an Englishman when I lived in Vienna, because I worked out how many times I said to a lot of Americans came to our church and said, how are you doing today? You know, I'm doing awesome. I am awesome. That was was the American's message, how are you doing? Doing awesome. And if you asked a British guy how he was doing, he said, yeah, it could be worse, (laughs) not bad. And I find myself saying, hey, you're not bad. And, that, you know, and I, I, it, t- it took my wife years to find out that when I said I was, wasn't bad, it meant that I was really, really happy. But, but I need, so we need to be reminded today that Jesus is alive. And the, the stone is empty. The, the stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty. And that makes every difference to our lives here, today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Jesus is alive. And the throne in heaven is occupied, and the Lord of life shattered the bonds of death, so we need never fear death. He stepped alive from the tomb. So, from while from time to time there is cause, there is cause enough for weeping. There is an unshakable hope that is greater than the weeping. There are grounds for joy. Because Jesus lives. Weeping may last for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And we know that because the tomb is empty. And with the dawn of the first Easter Sunday, the promise that one day death will be undone. Sorrow and sadness no more. Everything crooked made straight. I'm sure that was C.S. Lewis who said that first, but it's a wonderful way of looking at it. Everything crooked, made straight. The lamb will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And that promise was guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lift up your head. Christ is risen. Why are you weeping? So that's the word of correction. And then verse 16, I believe there's a a word of calling. The second word of the risen Lord Jesus in response to Mary's confusion. The first is that word of correction, why are you weeping? The second is a word of calling. Mary thinks that the risen Lord is the gardener. So she explains her fears that someone has moved, someone has taken his body. And Jesus calls her by name. I love that. That she said, he said, Mary. He called her by name. It's one of the most... Poignant, beautiful moments in Holy Scripture that the risen Christ calls one of his dear ones to himself by her familiar name. She had turned her back on him when she had asked the question. She's now looking in the tomb. But then she hears her name. Suddenly, her eyes are opened. When he called her name, was when her eyes were opened. Didn't recognize him a minute before, but when He said, Mary, she knew exactly who he was. She turned again to look and she cried. I'm sure she cried, Rabboni. And which isn't actually just teacher, it is my teacher. So there's a note of intimacy, my teacher, my Lord, my teacher. And when he called her name, her eyes were opened. She was looking the wrong way. She was Looking for the living among the dead in a dusty old tomb. Where Jesus was not. She was looking for life where there was not where there was no life, but when he called, she turned to him. Her grief was replaced with gladness and sorrow with celebration. It is an individual call. We mentioned it about this morning. Is that the, the privilege of being born? brought up in a christian home but you have to make it real for yourself it's a personal call jesus called her by name and jesus said that is what he does for all of us john 10 verse 3 the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out praise the lord he called you by name and called you out isaiah 43 verse 1 fear not for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. So the call of Jesus Christ in the gospel is pictured so beautifully in his exchange with Mary, so beautifully. Because when the call of Jesus Christ comes in the power of the Holy Spirit it lifts the veil, dispels the darkness and opens our eyes. Jesus' in, Jesus's invitation is not a general proposition thrown out at random. The fact you're hearing the word of God is profoundly personal. And the risen Lord Jesus would issue you the same invitation he issued Mary by calling you by name. He's calling to you personally, individually, intimately. He's calling you to come and see who he is and to turn away from the empty tomb. You think, just, just think with me for a moment of How many times I have as well, maybe you have, but just think about how many people are looking in all the wrong places this afternoon. There's millions looking in the wrong places for peace, for pardon, for life, for a clean conscience. Just to get through the week. But you need to hear Christ calling you by name. You need to look to him. And your eyes are opened and you'll see the Lord of glory, the creator himself, risen in victory over the grave. And nothing will ever be the same again. So Mary's confusion, Jesus' tender word of correction, but his call, Mary, Mary, that's what did it, his call. And he's calling you in the gospel. When you answer the call and turn to Christ alone? He is the only one. And finally, Jesus' word of commission in verses 17 and 18. When Mary sees who he is, she does what I suspect most of us would do. She reaches out to take hold of him in her joy, in her wonder. But Jesus understands that behind this touch there is more than a touch of affection and gratitude, there is something else in Mary's heart. There is that desire to hold on to him, to hold him down, as it were. I'm never going to let you out of my sight again. And it's understandable, because she had thought she had lost him. She had thought she had lost him. And here he is. So she wants to cling on to him. But she doesn't see what must happen next. Jesus wasn't there to stay. He must ascend to the right hand of the Father to take his place as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and to pour his Spirit on the church so that the church may be equipped to take the good news that he lives to the ends of the earth. That is why he couldn't stay. He had to ascend. And his spirit would come so that we would be equipped to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And what is our message? He lives. He's not there. He is risen. And so he says to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. The issue isn't that he can't be touched. Of course not. Because do you remember Thomas, down in Thomas, in the upper room, put your finger here. See it in my hands. Put your hand, place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He rose in the same body with which he suffered. He is physically risen. The issue isn't physicality. The issue is he can't say, And it's better for Mary, it's better for the disciples. And praise the Lord, it is better for us that he ascended. And that is Jesus' point. So instead of Mary clinging to him, Jesus says, Mary, I have a job for you. And he gave her the commission to go back to the disciples with the good news. Not just that Christ has risen, but why he has risen. What it is that his cross and empty tomb gives us. Look at the message she is to proclaim. I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Why this emphasis on the fatherhood of God? Well, the greatest benefit that comes to us from the sufferings and exaltation, from the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus, is our adoption into the family of God. He lives that you might have a place in the family. That's that's what the resurrection of Jesus is about. It's an invitation for you to come home. I love that. It's an invitation for you to come home. From the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. To turn to Him in faith, the faith that opens eyes and sees the Lord and trusts Him to be our Redeemer, Rescuer, and King. An invitation to trust Him. There is no privilege greater than wayward, hell deserving sinners like me should be called a child of God. That is unbelievable that I should be called a child of God, an heir of God and a co-heir with Jesus Christ. So that is the invitation extended to us all as Jesus would call your name in the gospel and bids you come to him. And Jesus is saying, come home to your true family. You'll become my brother, my sister and my father will be your father forever. That's the message that she was given to take. Come home to the family you will become my brother my sister and my father will be your father may the, may the god of grace give us grace that we would hear king jesus speaking our names in the gospel that we would turn from looking for life where there is none and to take our place in the family may he may god have all the glory because of what the Lord has done. Amen. Amen.